0: All right, uh, dust and glory—the Imago Day and what it means to be human. Uh, we are continuing in that this morning. Uh, if you've been with us through most of this series, we took a couple week break, uh, but we've been walking through what does it mean to be made in God's image, and what does that mean for us about what it means to be human? Uh, and we've hit on a number of different topics kind of throughout this, uh, and have uh, talked a little bit about how this helps us engage with. Uh, the world around us, and this morning we are going to look at, uh, more specifically, how we interact with some of those ethical concerns that are raised in our culture today about what it means to be human. Uh, and so, as we said earlier, during our family meeting, we're actually going to have a Q&A, um, and I'm going to just answer some questions and we're, have a little discussion. And so, if you think of a question during the sermon, I don't want you to forget it, and so you can actually submit it already. Um, this Q&A thing is open, so you can submit questions. You can submit them anonymously. Um, that way, you, if you have a very specific or personal question, you don't have to attach your name to it at all. Uh, and in this thing as well, if you see a question that is in there that you like and you think someone should answer, you can actually vote for it to be uh, upvote it or whatever uh, you can click the little thumbs up button to say hey no really answer this question so that would be helpful for us as we uh, answer those questions so this QR code will actually be on the screen uh, in the corner uh, throughout the sermon series but if you want to scan it now or you can go to slido.com and enter that number and then you can answer or put in your questions so Um, And we're just going to take some time. We don't think that this is going to be the end-all be-all to these conversations. That we hope that this is actually just a launching point for us to have conversations together. All right. Uh, Now, as we get started, I want to... Anchor us in a specific text and then kind of we're going to spread out from there. This will feel a little different from most of our sermons here. Uh, If you've been around City Hope for a long time, we just walk through books of the Bible. We land in a text and we just walk through that text. This is what this text means and how we apply it to our lives. Today is a little bit more of a, hey, how do we synthesize things that the Bible teaches all together? Um, And so I want to root us in a place that gets our mindset right for this. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 2. Quickly, uh, Mark chapter two verses thirteen through seventeen. Right, it says this. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among, among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people, people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners." I wanted to look at this passage because I think there are uh, two ways in which we can do ethics. Two ways in which we can look at ethics. And it boils down to these two groups that we see in the midst of Jesus' teaching here. We see these teachers of religious law who were Pharisees. Now these, the Pharisees, were the conservative folks of their day. The conservative religious folks of their day. They had all the right answers. They never struggled with themselves. They read all the right books. They voted in all the right ways, if they were voting at that time. Right? They did all the right things. They had all the proper desires. They were the right folks. They knew all the right things. And when it came to ethics, that is the moral principles by which they, uh, they guide their behavior. That's what ethics is, moral principles by which we guide our behavior. When it came to ethics, they had biblical ethics. They had correct ethics. On paper, they probably got all the right answers, and yet it led to a disdain for people made in the image of God, right? Their response when Jesus is eating with these folks is, why does he eat with with such scum? They had a disdain for people made in the image of God. Now, as Jesus comes along in his teaching, he's gathering these folks who are Uh, disreputable sinners and tax collectors, those that were outcast in the culture of the day. He gathers them together. He's not going to throw out the law. And actually, the Pharisees for sure got some stuff right. But the point remains, by and large, they had the right answer to individual ethical issues, but they missed the overarching ethic. Because what it led to, their individual correct answers led to a disdain and hatred for those made in the image of God. You can contrast that with the followers of Jesus. Uh, Did you catch that aside, that parenthesis that Mark includes? There were many such people among the followers of Jesus. Tax collectors and disreputable sinners. Those that were obviously wrong in their thinking. Those that obviously did the wrong thing in their life. Those who had the wrong lifestyle, the wrong choices. They got things wrong and everyone knew it. The outcasts of the religious community. They were the ones that hung out with Jesus. These were the folks who made up the followers of Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't leave them where they are. Certainly, he goes on to teach them the law. We can see Jesus says, actually, nothing of the law is going to be left undone. It's going to be fulfilled, right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, we're, we're wiping stuff out. He goes on to teach through the apostles all sorts of New Testament ethics. All of this is true, but the point of this is to highlight something at the onset which is going to be true throughout this sermon and something that I believe is supported by the whole thrust of the New Testament. There's a way to be right about an individual thing and yet to miss the whole point. There's a way that we can be right about an individual topic and yet miss Jesus' whole point in loving others. If I can say it a different way, when it comes to ethics, we can do it in two ways. We can do it as teachers of religious law or as followers of Jesus. And the tricky part here, and the most important part, is that the individual answers to different ethical questions might be the same in both categories. The individual answers might be the same as teachers of religious law and followers of Jesus, like Is this right or wrong? We might answer it in the same way, but the difference between the two isn't just truth, but also love for people made in the image of God. What we need in order to actually enter into uh, difficult topics is an overarching ethic of love which is shaped by the cross of Jesus. William Barclay says this. He says the whole point about Christian love is that it is the, that attitude of the mind and the will and the whole personality which can make us love the unlovely, the unlovable, even those who hate us and hurt us and injure us. In the sense that do what they like, we will never have anything but goodwill to them. And we will never seek anything but their good. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5. says, if you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? Uh, love your neighbor is in the law, hate your enemy is not, <laughs> right? This is how teachers of religious law would have said it during that day. When Jesus says in any of these places, you have heard it said, he's not quoting the scriptures. He's saying, this is how you've heard the teachers of religious law say it. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, how can we do this? How can we love like this? We can only love like this through the cross of Jesus. Romans 5, chapter, uh, Romans chapter 5 verses 3 through 8 say this, we, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came and at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still Sinners. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And did you catch this? It talks about the love of God. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. But what also does he say? He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. You see, we are filled by the Holy Spirit with the love of God that we can extend to others. The cross shows us that God loves his enemies. And loves them even to the point of death. And we now are filled with the Spirit to extend that very same love to the world around us. We love because He first loved us. And so now we can have sacrificial cross-shaped love for the world. Meaning that we are seeking to share with the world the Gospel that can reconcile them vertically with God and the Gospel which can reconcile them horizontally with one another. We can actually come in and love those that disagree with us, those who even disagree with us to the point of persecuting us. That's the ethic that Jesus instills in us by His love. And so this is incredibly important for us, and the overarching thing. If you get nothing else from this sermon, and I promise you I'm not trying to just avoid hard things by just talking a lot about this overarching ethic, but this is the most important thing. We can have lots of discussion about nuanced and difficult topics, but if we miss this, we miss Jesus. We have to enter into these conversations with the love of God for us and for our neighbor. It's the most important thing that we do. Now, if you remember, we've been building a framework for us to understand these things because what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means to be human is a pretty complex thing. And so I didn't want to jump in on one specific topic or two specific topics or anything like that without giving you sort of a biblical framework. So we're going to have to try and remember those things that we've learned as we enter into this. Remember, we talked about being created in the image of God, being created by God. And that says things about what it means to be human, that we are not our own, that we belong to God, that He determines who we are, that He is Creator and Lord. And yet, we fell we sinned against God and humanity was uh, fell into a state of fallen humanity so we now are sinners and not only are we sinners but us fall our, our fall into sin actually affected everything about the world It is fundamentally broken Things aren't the way they should be. And so we might see things that are ideals in creation and then our experience doesn't line up with that. That makes sense. The Bible actually says, yes, that's true. Because everything's broken. The creation itself is longing to be redeemed. Another piece that we looked at was that we are created as embodied creatures. We are soul and body together. We are made together. With bodies, and that God said that's good. And we need to understand, right, that we are finite human creatures. And finally, we looked at the purpose by which God made us to love Him and to experience His love and to glorify Him in what we do. So, why talk now about ethics? Well, the world we live in and in our culture has an understanding, or rather, at this point in our culture, has great confusion about what it means to be human. Who defines what it means to be human, and how do we understand human flourishing? How do we understand what it means for humans to thrive and to flourish together? We have contended throughout this series and touched on some of these concerns that God is our Creator, Lord, and Redeemer. And as such, He gets to determine what it means to be human. From our very birth, we are not autonomous creatures. We are utterly dependent. And not just physically dependent, but we are utterly in need of guidance from God. And so, as we walk through some of these things, I'm going to give you some uh, answers to some things and also some Uh, ways to think about things and some of the ways in which we talk about this will start conversation and for some of you who like succinct, real, like concrete answers, you're going to be really frustrated. I'm sorry. Some of you are going to say that what he just said there, that sounds really left and that one sounds really right and I don't know what to do with all of those things. My hope is to make all of you a little angry so none of you are super angry, right? (laughs) Now, like the reality is we actually want to be determined by Jesus and not by some other tribe. We are to be the followers of Jesus. And so if our thoughts about ethical issues line up perfectly with a political party and not with Jesus, we've got a problem. If we find in us desire for lining up in something and, and we buck against something that Jesus has said, that probably means that Jesus is real and not a figment of our imagination. If I walk through all of these things and you're like, yep, that's super easy, nothing challenging there, then you probably have some other idea about God that's not him because he is God, which means we will probably like struggle with some of the things he says because we're not God. And he's not a figment of our imagination. So the idea that we have to uh, line up completely without struggle or, or difficulty, that's not what I'm trying to talk about today. I expect that we will have some level of disagreement in some of these things. That makes sense. So some of them will be frustrating answers, I'm sure. Not only that, but we're not giving full answers by any means. We're really just... Raising questions and inviting us into a fuller conversation with an overarching ethic that allows you to wrestle through complex things, okay? So we're not going to fully unpack all of these things. So, Romans 12 gives us a little bit of a framework for how we would go about this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that He has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world or the ethics of this world, right? The behavior and customs of this world. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We must learn from God's word. Right. If we are not to copy the way of the world in all of these things, we must learn from God's Word. Now, it's interesting, immediately from this, where does Paul go in Romans 12.9? Uh, he says this, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. And in 12.21, he says, don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. After he's just talked about loving those who persecute you. So Paul does the exact same thing that I already said about Jesus, right? We need to be transformed and not like the world, not conformed to the world. But in doing so, one of the ways in which that's evidenced is our love of neighbor. So the evidence of this is not getting everything right only, but loving neighbor. Again, we need to fight against this idea in which we can get ethical questions answered correctly and that give us freedom to hate our neighbor. We can never allow getting an ethical question correctly to give us freedom to hate our neighbor. It means we've fundamentally got something wrong. Okay, so I want to hit some big categories and then we'll kind of dive into what it means. Uh, We are to love God, right, and love our neighbor. Love God and love our neighbor as we love ourselves, Jesus says. So we want to understand how can we love God and understand ourselves and what it means to be human. And then how can we love God and understand how to relate to our neighbor. So those are kind of the two things that we're going to, how do we understand ourselves and what it means to be human. And how do we understand how to interact with our neighbor, So, first, our view of ourselves. One of the things that we've talked about kind of throughout this sermon series is the idea of shame and how we understand things like body image and uh, all sorts of things that lead to mental and physical health issues. These are huge concerns for ethics, for Christian ethics, and about what it means to be human. Remember, we talked about we are embodied creatures. And that means, as embodied creatures, we experience the brokenness of the world around us, we experience sin, and we experience being finite creatures. One of the most important things about understanding the image of God is affirming the dignity and value you have. God loves you, God thinks that you are more important than the stars. We have to start here because so many of the other ethical concerns that we hit with is because people have a wrong view of themselves before God. And when we have a wrong view of ourselves before God, we end up feeling harmed and being harmed ourselves personally, and then we end up harming others so often. It's a huge ethical concern because many of us and many people in our lives adopt a wrong view of ourselves, allowing our circumstances. Our abuse, our sin, our being bullied and marginalized, our self-loathing. We allow those things to define what it means for us to be human before God. But as we've learned, God has stamped you with his very image. He affirms this in the sending of his son Jesus in becoming flesh You have the highest value in the universe outside of God. You have the highest value in the universe outside of God. Do you believe that? Do you know if your neighbors believe that? If there's ever going to be ethical concerns for us as Christians entering into the world about what it means to be human, we should come first and foremost that every person has dignity, value, and worth. They are more important than the stars. So many of these other issues come because we don't think ourselves worthy of God's love, and so we lash out, either intentionally or unintentionally. Or, we don't believe our neighbor is worthy of God's love. So many ethical concerns about our relationship with our neighbor and ways in which we want to enter in and care for our neighbors as they harm one another is related to do we believe that they are worthy of God's love? So, as Christians, we should care if we're to care about issues of shame and self worth and all of these things that encompass this, we should care about holistic care for people. Mind, body, soul, and strength. We talked about this, that we are whole persons and we need to care for the whole person. So we should encourage people to talk with experts who can help care in those ways. Right? It means we need to reduce stigma around mental health concerns and speak up about those things and encourage people to utilize the tools available to them by professionals who can help counseling, therapy, medication, and encourage people to continue to look to the scriptures and prayer and friends and your pastor and all of those things, right? All of them, not one or the other, right? Like oftentimes as Christians, we tend to allow for things to be seen as spiritual issues only, and they might not just be spiritual issues, they might be other things. And so we should encourage all of those things. Another aspect of knowing ourselves that is really huge in understanding what it means to be human is understanding how do we understand human sexuality? Human sexuality is a huge frontier of ethics and the discussion of what it means to be human in our culture. Our theology of human sexuality must nuance between the extreme consent-only sexual ethic of our culture, which I think is a pretty fair way to summarize our cultural sexual ethic. Consent only. If there's consent, then there's no question. Anything goes. I don't think that that's helpful. Um, and I do uh, I think we need to uh, navigate between the extreme of that, uh, which, which actually, I mean, that cultural ethic isn't working, is it? Like, we're not It's not making us as a culture more satisfied, fulfilled, less abusive, or less oversexed. All of those things. Like, it actually makes it more so that we view this as the only determining factor of what it means to be human. It can't be the only determining factor of what it means to be human. But we treat it that way sometimes, by the importance that we give it. Now, we need to thread that nuance between that extreme and between the church's historical mistakes around human sexual sexuality. Uh, mistreatment of sexual minorities, fear-based sex education, uh, the body being evil, blaming women's sexuality for the sins of men, all of these things. like All of that stuff that is another extreme error, we need to be able to thread between those two things. And we need to have room for Jesus In our sexual ethic. I've said this kind of throughout this sermon series, right? When we understand uh, what it means to be human, if we don't have room for Jesus, we're probably missing something as Jesus' followers, right? That seems pretty basic, right? So we need to have room for Jesus in a sexual ethic. And Jesus was fully human, the incarnation is very important right we just talked about this this is the way god confirms for us he values you more than the stars is he sends his son in the flesh lives a fully human life lived for us the fullness of human life and yet was unmarried meaning he had no sex so sex cannot be ultimate it cannot be ultimate Cannot be ultimate but must point to something far greater. Also, even in the midst of that, it not being ultimate, the church has at different times taught that sex was just bad. Uh, And and, uh, God sort of is like, He he allows for it, but he doesn't really like it. it. You know, it's really bad, right? If you read certain church history, like there's portions where you're like, yeah, that's not that's not what the Bible actually says about some of these things, right? So How should we understand human sexuality? Well, sex, according to the Bible, is reserved for marriage between one man and one woman. Anything outside of that in thought, word, or deed is sinful. So that would include pornography, same-sex sexual activity, adultery, sexual abuse, rape, lust. Uh, Right? Jesus says if if you've uh, looked at a person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. So that list condemns uh, all of us, right? That list condemns all of us. There's a reason that God tied sex to bearing and raising children, right? Not exclusively as the only reason for it, but something that is given uh, to something that has such incredible responsibility tied to it. should be treated with fear and the appropriate fear and reverence, right? We talked about this when we talked about the purpose, right? We actually get to join God in creating image bearers. That's insane. We get to join God in creating the most important thing in the universe outside of God. That's crazy. So that's why God has tied that with something really important. Like those things are tied together. That's important. That means we should think about that carefully and not flippantly. And yet, the Christian sexual ethic must include forgiveness, mercy, and grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. This is in the context of Paul talking about sexual ethics. He says, you were bought with a price. Now, there's two ways that we can interpret that. One is to say, there is forgiveness for any sexual sin. There is forgiveness. There is a real price that Jesus really paid in our place. So that we could be free. This is glorious news. Glorious news. There is very real forgiveness. And yet, at the same time, it is also true that that forgiveness means that Jesus gets to be in charge of what we do with our body because he bought us at a high price. And he's good and wonderful. He is our Savior, and so we can trust Him even when we struggle against it. We can trust Him because He's good and He loves us. Now, related to human sexuality is another aspect of human sexuality in cultural ethics is the concerns related to biological sex and gender. And so I think it's important for us to talk a little bit about this uh, biological sex, uh, male and female, and uh, there's also categories um, known as intersex, which is a broad category related to a number of different conditions, which embody both male and female. Uh, this is very complicated stuff that we're not going to get into here, because it's way too complicated to, unless you guys got like six hours, uh, <laughs> we don't have a lot of time for that. So, uh, just giving you the broad categories. Now, we have seen throughout this sermon series, right, that God created them male and female. In the image of God, he created them male and female. The full expression of the image of God is male and female. That is important in, our, in understanding that God created humans as male and female, and this distinction is important for displaying the fullness of God's image. So, biological sex is important. Now, gender used to be synonymous, the the language category of gender used to be synonymous with biological sex. In our culture, gender and biological sex are no longer synonymous. Now, that's important for us to understand uh, and not really a battle that's necessary for us to fight against. It's just human language develops and changes and grows, and so it's okay uh, that that's the case. And we need to understand that there are complex social and personal issues related to gender and related to things like gender dysphoria and transgenderism. So what should we do with this? Right? That there is uh, very much uh, some people experience incongruence between their gender identity and their biological sex. That happens. That's a real thing. People experience that now. Some of that is uh, more on something that can be uh, more categorized as gender dysphoria, but some in uh, trans movement would not use, uh, would not experience gender dysphoria, yet would still use that language to define their gender identity as something different. Uh, As uh, one of the books I've been reading uh, quotes uh, Christian Mark Yarborough, and he says, uh, "If you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person." It's as unique as there are people. And so it's a very complex thing. It's a very nuanced thing, a complex thing. So there are certainly ethical concerns for Christians in the midst of this. There's ethical concerns for public policy, especially as it relates to children. That's important, important for us to think about. And yet we need to remember, even in the midst of that importance, that people and their stories are also incredibly important And in valuing people and their Stories is incredibly important. One area in which I think we can help a ton in this is the area of gender norms. The church actually has done great damage to those who experience incongruence between their gender identity and their biological sex and to everyone else by taking cultural norms around gender and making them biblical norms of masculinity and femininity. If you don't feel comfortable... In the cultural norms of what it means to be a man or a woman, that's okay. That is okay. And actually, there's almost nothing in the Bible that is a gender-specific command. Almost nothing. There's a few, but almost nothing. Far, uh, far less than we make it seem. So much of the feeling of isolation and incongruence, not all, certainly I'm not saying that genuine gender dysphoria and the deep feelings of incongruence are not real, But much of this could be helped if we allowed people made in the image of God to be themselves and not feel the pressure to fit into some masculine or feminine stereotype, particularly in the church. Let us, the people of God, work to fix that. Let us allow for that to be the case. Let us not make snide comments and remarks about somebody's uh, abilities in, in a certain thing, making them feminine or male. Because that's not actually a thing. Right? That we are made in the image of God, male and female, and we actually get to express those things in ways that sometimes are outside of cultural norms. That's okay. If you actually look at, and also those cultural norms change all the time, right? A hundred years ago, pink was a masculine color and blue was a feminine color in this culture. So, like, those things change all the time. But the reality is, right, if you look at, masculine norms that the church often talks about, Jesus doesn't fit half of those. Again, if you can't fit Jesus in your ethic, you've done something wrong. So it's really important for us to enter into that conversation and actually listen to people and their experience. And if they experience something that makes me feel like, I feel like you're saying I'm less of a man or less of a woman because I don't experience this thing in the church or whatever... Let's listen to that and change. That's really important. We can do that. That's really easy. Not easy, necessarily, but it's really important for us to do that, and it doesn't make us cross some ethical line. It's actually just biblical for us to do those things. We also need to understand in this conversation that there is great nuance to transgender conversation, to transgender experience, and the idea of incongruence between your biological sex and your gender identity, we should understand that. Our theology has room to understand that because we are created in God's image and yet the fall breaks everything. So if somebody has an experience where they're like, something doesn't feel right, we should affirm, that makes sense. Now, what we do with that is a different question, but we can start by affirming that, that makes sense. Actually, the Bible has a lot to say about that. That totally makes sense. And let's listen. Like, tell me about that experience. I've never had gender dysphoria. I don't know what it, that experience is like. I've read accounts of people who have experienced that. And I want to listen to their account, their story, their reality, and actually listen to that. Actually care. So the solution to like, what do I do with that experience? That's a different conversation that is to be like an individual person. We're going to have that individual conversation about how we walk through that in a Christian way of discipleship. But first and foremost, for us as a church, we're going to listen to people and love them like Jesus does. I'm not convinced that Christians engaging in lots of public policy debate around this is the best way forward for us in our culture. I'm sure there is some value in that, but I am convinced that before we do that, we better be listening and encouraging people and inviting them to come and live a life free of discrimination and have full dignity and value and worth. I'm convinced that that will do a lot more in actually loving people made in the image of God than public policy debates. I highly recommend, we could talk about this during the Q&A as well, but this book, Embodied, by Preston Sprinkle. Preston Sprinkle is a Christian thinker, author. He's really careful and helpful. This book has been really helpful. It's called Embodied, Transgender Identities and the the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. Really careful, uh, really highly researched. It's really, really good. Um, So I would highly recommend that. So that is how we understand ourselves. Now, there's like 50 more categories we could go into about how we understand ourselves. So, I'm just giving you some ideas, right? Some big picture things. We could talk about all the specifics as we go through life together. Um, Second, how do we love God in the way we interact with our neighbors? So, I want to focus here on ethical issues. Primarily, I want to focus here on ethical issues that are in the negative, ways in which we harm our neighbors, Certainly, the application would be that we ought to then love our neighbors in the positive, but the ethical concerns probably relate more to the negative here. So, two major, I think it's just two, yeah, two major categories in this, and that is exploitation of those made in the image of God and violence against those made in the image of God. Those two categories. So, under exploitation made in the image of God, there are issues and concerns around human trafficking, around poverty, around elderly care, around immigration, around care for those who have physical or mental disabilities. Now, obviously, in all of these ways, all of these are ways in which those who are made in God's image are diminished in their ability to flourish. And we should, as Christians in our private lives and as the church and in our public witness, through all the means available to us, help to alleviate suffering and help those in the image of God thrive and flourish. Living out their potential as shown in the creation mandate, right? Which is living in the way that God intended for us to live, in relationship with himself and with others and with creation. And so, in all of these things, we should think, how do we use the gifts that God has given to me personally, And my situation in life, how can I alleviate suffering of those of my neighbors who experience any of these things? And then, in this nation, one of the ways in which we can do that is by voting and uh, pursuing public policy that actually affects those issues. We actually should, because God has given us the ability to be in this nation at this time, we can affect those things. We should care about my neighbor as I vote. And if I'm not doing that, I'm not voting Christianly. I'm not talking about specific people or, or policies or anything like that. But if I'm not caring about my neighbor when I do it, then I'm not doing it in honor of Jesus. Because he tells me I've got to love neighbor in everything I do. So can we actually think creatively about how to solve some of these things? Can we actually utilize our gifts to stop poverty in our city? And alleviate some of it, just in our city, in this place that we live. Can we think, how do we do this? And think about that as an ethical concern about what it means to be human. Because we are not made to suffer in that way. We are made to flourish. So how do we take that understanding and then creatively use our gifts to help people flourish in this place? There's lots more we could say about that, but we're going to move on. To violence against the image of God. So there's a ton of ways in which this plays out. It could be suicide or assisted suicide. Racism, sexism, bigotry of any kind. It's violence against those made in the image of God. Gun violence, which comes into questions of self-defense and use of lethal force. War. Capital punishment. And abortion. All of these are very hot button issues. You see why I want to give an overarching ethic. <laughs> these are all really hard, nuanced, complicated conversations. So, in all of these things, I want to say a few things about all of them, and then we'll get into some specifics. Any way in which humans made in the image of God are not treated with dignity, value, and respect—that uh, the hum- sorry, not treated with the dignity, value, and respect that they deserve as those made in the image of God is unethical. So we should make and support policies that would show that, and we should act in such a way that would show that. We are a beautifully diverse people. It's how humans are made. And so, in all of these things, uh, it actually doesn't matter what you believe about any of these things. You deserve to be loved. You deserve to be treated as someone made in God's image. Remember, we talked about this earlier, that... uh, you are more important than the stars. Or as C.S. Lewis said in the quote that we had at the very first sermon here is, uh, next to this that we're going to do, the sacrament, later, the holiest thing you'll see today is the people sitting around you, your neighbor. That's the holiest thing you'll see today. Do we treat people that way? I want to give you some overarching principles for how we should think through some of these violence topics. We should promote life Value life from womb to tomb. In all of these complicated issues, we should be on the side of valuing life. There are complicated questions of ethics in terms of all lives involved in these situations. And we are to care for the vulnerable and marginalized. So, that means in... uh, uh, Sorry, we are to care for the vulnerable and marginalized and for love of enemies. So that's why situations like abortion, war, and self-defense are actually kind of closely related in a lot of ways because they are weighing lives made in the image of God against one another. Those are complicated questions. We should recognize nuance and complication in any one of these. uh, And if we recognize it in one of them, then we should recognize it in the other. Otherwise, we're not really being fair. Yet at the same time, if our value is the protection of those made in the image of God, that concern should pervade all of those things. So, certainly there are biblical cases to be made for a just war theory and for self-defense. And certainly that comes into uh, innocence versus guilt in a crime and all those types of things. Uh, But, We really need to take into consideration Jesus' concern for lack of retaliation and for enemy love. And all of those things. Personally, I'm unsure of, uh, I think it's okay biblically to take a just war theory. I think it's okay biblically to not take a just war theory. Uh, I'm a little unsure. I tend towards the peace option. It feels like the safer Jesus option to me, uh, if I don't know. (laughs) But I think a case can be made. But do I think that most wars fit the category of just war? No. I actually don't think most wars fit the category of just war. And if we think that Jesus' ethics should influence our public policy on issues like abortion, marriage, and human sexuality, not in the sort of crazy Christian nationalism way, like that stuff's bad. We don't want to do that. That's bad. But in the like, we are Christians who are private citizens in this land and we want to promote good ethics that love people, that kind of way. So that's what we're talking about here. If we think that those Jesus ethics should affect public policy on those things, then we should be consistent and think that those public policies of war and things like that should also be affected by our Jesus ethics. Jesus tells us where your treasure is, there your heart is, and this country spends a lot of treasure on weapons of war. So that's something that we should be concerned about. I'm not saying that the military or... Generals or soldiers or any of those are, are, are not welcome in the kingdom and they're bad. And evil. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if we want to promote the flourishing of human life and an ethic of Jesus in our personal lives and have that affect the public lives of ourselves and our neighbors, we shouldn't be defined by war. But we often are. Now, when it comes to the issue of abortion... I believe that we should be promoting holistic care from womb to tomb. Meaning, can we seek to eliminate the occasions for abortion? Promoting private and public, private lives that support this and public policy that cares for women in the workplace, supports children and families, and also is concerned about the ethics of public policy surrounding abortion. I think if we are, as a culture, concerned solely with bottom-line economics in private companies, our own personal lives as Christians, and in public policies that we support, then I'm not sure that we can be pro-life womb to tomb because we can't lay burdens on people that we're unwilling to help lift up. Now, the same is true uh, with, with issues of our own comfort and And those things, like we have to actually, if we value our own comfort more than the lives of other people, uh, we're we're not going to be in a position to actually care for the vulnerable. We have to be willing to take steps of discomfort for the sake of caring for those made in the image of God. Now, at the very same time, we need to help people understand that God has created life and that we believe the scriptures would teach that like all people are made in the image of God and violence against the image of God is not good. And so we want to care for the vulnerable in the womb and for mothers and for the situations that arise that create that. Jesus-shaped ethics will give us also grace, kindness towards everyone in the midst of this conversation. We would avoid ugly rhetoric we would respect our opponents and have a rock-solid commitment to caring for the vulnerable and marginalized, which certainly is the unborn, but also the mothers of the unborn as well. And we would, do, we would put the same financial, emotional, and volunteer, volunteer support into that as well. Also, we need to have nuance, grace, and forgiveness, not producing shame about the way we talk about those things. So if you are here and you've experienced or had an abortion, there is grace, forgiveness, forgiveness and comfort from the Lord for you. Real comfort from the Lord. Those are difficult circumstances and stories, and we want to hear your story and your experience and care for you in the midst of it. Now, in the midst of all of these things, we need to return to our call as Christians to an ethic of love. And that ethic of love will lead to meaningful and holistic public engagement. And it will lead to us entering into the nuance and complication of our current moment in time and space and listening. Here's the thing. We are going to get stuff wrong. We're going to say this policy is the best to promote something that we believe is true. And then we might be shown, actually, that doesn't do what you said it does. So, you know what we do? In humility, we say, You're right. I was wrong. And then we engage in more good conversation and discussion. We can actually help, particularly right now. One of the things that is really important for us as followers of Jesus is entering into these conversations and toning the temperature down in these conversations. Because our culture is so angry with one another. If you disagree with me on this, you are my enemy. What does Jesus tell us about enemies? We're to love them. So we can actually enter in and say, these are really important matters. Yes. Let's have nuanced, complicated, life-giving discussions and not tear one another down. We should actually be known for love. People should actually want to take their complicated life situations to the church. But most often, people don't want to take their complicated life decisions or life complications to the church. So, how do we do that? We need to be followers of Jesus and not teachers of religious law. Jesus, I want to end with this story Jesus interacting with the teachers of religious law, kind of bookend this thing. Jesus was speaking, and one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So, he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down uh, to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. It stopped. Did you click off? No? Okay. Oh, there we go. Uh, what sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Teachers, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us, <laughs> too, in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is just like straight to the point here. What sorrow also awaits you, experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. This is the point I want to hit on. Let us not crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a, bur- lift a finger to help. What sorrow awaits you, for you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world. From the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. Let us not remove from people the key to the kingdom by giving them a whole bunch of ethical things. This is what it means to be human. This is what it means to do right. And not giving them the key to the kingdom. Jesus. Jesus is the key to the kingdom. Don't use ethics to lay burdens on people that you will not help lift. How do you help lift those burdens? Give them Jesus. Give them Jesus. Don't feel better about yourself for getting something right and let that lead to mocking or downplaying or hating or ignoring your neighbor. We need to actually take what Jesus says here, giving people the key to the kingdom and give people who are made in the image of God the fullness of the image of God, Jesus and the gospel. So one of the most important things for us to do from this place is to, yes, learn what it means to be human and how I need to order my life by Jesus and submit myself to his word and then enter into the world with difficult and conversations and nuance and all of those things, yes. And at the end of the day, the most important thing that we can do is love people who are made in the image of God and give them Jesus. Because that's the thing that will actually transform them about what it means to be human. Because Jesus is the fullness of the image of God. He is the fullness, the exact representation of who God is. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. So what better way to help people understand the complicated nature of what it means to be human than by giving them the God-man, Jesus. That's what we want to do, because that's what he did for us. Remember, God didn't send us a book of ethical rules. He sent us a person. So as we go into the world, we got to go, not with books of ethical rules, but as people to transmit the gospel to others. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you now knowing that there are a lot of complicated things here. And God, we want to submit ourselves to you. Would you work in us and through us God, would you be gracious to us in all of these things. And Jesus, would you be honored, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand as we sing and respond together in worship.